Good evening, everyone. A very warm welcome to our evening service and our trial of a slightly different format this evening. Uh, really looking forward to, to it and uh, discussing what is a really, really significant topic um, under the theme of Isn't Christianity Oppressive? Um, just before we begin, I'm going to open with a word of prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you this evening and we just thank you uh, for the fact that we can um, even ask this kind of question. Lord, um, we are able to think freely about our faith. Uh, Lord, we uh, don't um, fear asking, asking these kind of questions because we know, uh, Lord, that you are good and you are faithful and your word is true. Lord, thank you for uh, the confidence it gives us that our faith is logical and reasonable and rational. Father, I just pray that as we think through uh, the big topics that we um, are going to be thinking through in this series, Lord, I just pray you'll build confidence in our faith. Uh, Lord, above all, would you build confidence uh, in your word? Lord, help us to trust you in a society that increasingly uh, seeks to undermine your truth. Uh, Lord, I just ask for your blessing uh, upon this series. And just please uh, bless my discussion tonight with Jim. I just pray that it might be helpful and beneficial to all those who tune in. So Father, we thank you for all your goodness and we praise you above all for your son, the Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Brilliant. So um, just to kind of open things up here and, and give a little bit of a uh, kind of explainer defining the, the kind of problem that we're looking to address uh, tonight. Um, I just want to kind of introduce it by saying that actually the society we're growing up in, uh, many of our young people are growing up in, particularly thinking of the guys in CY, and we're so glad that you guys have joined us tonight for this. Um, the society you guys are growing up in is, is increasingly hostile to the word of God. And you guys are growing up in a world that outright rejects the Bible's stance on morality, and particularly when it comes to things like gender roles and sexuality and identity. Um, and not only that, but the Bible and Christianity in general are actually seen as part of the problem. Um, Christians are increasingly being seen as oppressive, as holding people back from being who they truly are. And as a result, it's really critical that each of us are equipped to think biblically in the face of these false ways of thinking. And at the root of that thinking has to be a rock solid confidence in the word of God, in the authority of the word of God. We need to be able to trust it. And so this series, which is going to be over five weeks, is going to look at some big questions related to our confidence in the word of God. It's designed to help us build confidence in scripture and to help us counter many of the lies that we hear uh, in our culture on an almost daily basis. And those lies, we can hear them in a bunch of different ways. We can hear them through the mainstream media, through social media, maybe at school, maybe it's in the workplace, in the music we listen to, in the books we read. Uh, we hear a false narrative. We hear false ideas about uh, what really is true and what really is right. And so what is the problem we're trying to address? Well, increasingly, people think about the world in a very limited way. So look, look at the slide on, on the screen, slide, uh, a slide which tries to demonstrate that. People see the world like uh, we see in this slide. A lot of people do. 
Um, they, they see the world as being made up of an oppressor, so the person standing on top of that cage with their arms stretched out, and the oppressed, the, the person in the cage, bound up, restricted. And the oppressor almost holds the victim down, preventing them living the free and happy life they might live otherwise. Now, oppression might be physical, it might be abuse or an enslavement, but often that oppression can be like a psychological kind of oppression. Uh, the oppressor will refuse to allow you to identify as the person who you truly are, the person you truly want to be. And so then the goal of the oppressed person, the person in the cage, is to overthrow the oppressor and to find freedom and liberty. And you see the guy, the orange chap on, on the right of your screen there, looking very happy with himself as he's found freedom and his identity. Um, and so we're told that that oppressor can take many forms. So if we flick to our next slide, one of the narratives we hear is that actually white men in particular, um, they are part of the problem. They are the oppressor. They've long sought to dominate women or members of the LGBT community or black people um, and actually white men they're really a big big issue in our society another uh, way that this is presented is that the church is the oppressor so we look at the next slide people will say actually uh, the problem is really the church the church have held people down for generations whether it be women or LGBT people or people of different races the church is at fault here and as a result they need to be overthrown and we need to find freedom by overthrowing the authority of the church. Or some people might say, well, actually, it's the Bible specifically that is the thing that is holding people down. The Bible expresses ideas that are backward and maybe they're discriminatory and bigoted. And actually, we need to move on past that. That's ancient history. We need to forget all that. And we need to, uh, we need to overthrow the Bible, in effect, and pursue freedom outside of it. And then um, number four... And this is arguably the most serious. A lot of people actually see God, uh, the Father, God himself as the problem. And he's kind of regarded as the ultimate form of oppression. Uh, and actually, a lot of people would say, well, we need, to, we need to get rid of God then. We need to overthrow God, the Father, and pursue freedom outside uh, of God. And so maybe some of you teenagers listening will have heard friends talk in these terms. Maybe they didn't use this exact language, but the idea of being a Christian, the idea of being uh, belonging to a church, well, that seems really limited and restrictive and actually maybe even backward or bigoted. Uh, and maybe you felt guilty for believing some of the things that you believe because you don't want to be, quite rightly, you don't want to be bigoted or sexist or homophobic or whatever it is. That idea seems horrible to you. And you can't bear the thought that you might be hurting other people by believing some of the things the Bible teaches. And the question is, well, then how should we react to this way of thinking? How should we uh, react to these things? Should we, should we say, well, actually, people who say this, they're talking nonsense? Should we accept it and adapt what we believe to fit in with what people are saying? Well, this is what I want to talk to Jim about in a little bit more detail. Jim, thanks for being willing to field a few of our questions on this topic. Uh, thank you, Ollie, and welcome, everyone. Uh, it's good to be with you. Brilliant. Jim, we're going to kick things off by uh, talking a little bit about
that if I oppressed you, you know, it would be if I locked you up or if I took away all your money or I beat you with a big stick. Uh, and a really obvious example of oppression in that category would be slavery um, or uh, putting people in prison camps. But nowadays, oppression is described in psychological terms. Uh, and let me explain what that means. So according to left-wing ideologies, it is society's job to support your inner happiness. So society is regarded like a gigantic big therapy group uh, where we all have to affirm and support each other. So if I do anything that makes you unhappy, then I am oppressing you. Yeah, and I think that idea is, is really important, Jim, because of our focus on identity. I think a big, a big thing amongst young people and teenagers in particular is this idea that, you know, what is my identity? How do I define myself? And teenagers are, are taught to create their own identity by maybe looking down deep inside themselves and then deciding who they want to be and who they are. And then it's society's job to kind of affirm them and support that identity they've created. That's right. Uh, and I think it's at this point that we begin to see the core difference uh, between how Christians view themselves and how our society views the individual. And so I'm going to take an example, um, not, a, not a pleasant one, but imagine that I enslave you, Ollie, okay? I commit the terribly wicked act of putting you in chains and making you do what I demand. Now, according to Christianity, I have robbed you of your freedom. I have treated you with dis disrespect. But no matter how badly I oppress you, I cannot take away your intrinsic value as a human being. Even in your chains, you will always be a creature made in the image of God. God will find you valuable, and that will give you worth. Okay, so that's the Christian view. But in today's society, people don't have that foundational part of, their, of a healthy identity. Society teaches that my value comes from other people. My dignity as a human being, my value, is either given to me or taken away from me by other people. So in the example that I've just given, society would say that the enslaved Ollie uh, had no value at all because your ability to choose had been taken from you. And in the modern world, the value of a human being is awarded by other human beings. Yeah, so, so that then begins to make sense of how oppression can be seen in, in psychological terms. It's not just about, you know, you physically enslaving me, Jim. If my value comes down to how other people treat me, then that changes the different ways that I can be oppressed. But it still seems very confusing to say that society's job is to support my inner happiness. How have we got to the point where people think that society um, should affirm and support every decision that, that I take? Yeah, you, you hear that sort of language very often from the LGBT community. They claim to be invisible or unaffirmed by wider society. Now, there is a truth in the idea that we all need to be seen and appreciated. It's a horrible thing when people feel invisible and when they feel as if no one really regards them as important or valuable. But let's just ask ourselves a simple question here. If you look back at your own life, where did you experience acceptance? Where were you seen and appreciated and affirmed? And it was in the family home. That is one of the crucial reasons why the Bible regards the family as the cornerstone of society. It's in the home that we get to be seen and appreciated and affirmed. But of course, the progressive left uh, are determined to tear down the family. I mean, if you think over their policies since the 1960s, no-fault divorce, uh, gay marriage and so on, the left has waged a relentless war against the family for over 60 years. 
So we might say that having knocked down the basic building block of society where identity is forged, the left now wants society to be their family. They want the world to be our home. So that's why it's commonplace today to hear people argue that it is society's job to support my inner happiness, to affirm my identity and to appreciate me. Now, of course, the Bible has a much simpler view of society's role. It exists. Society exists to uh, keep the peace, maintain law and order, and allow all of us to get on with our lives. But the left wants the world to be our home. Thanks, Jim. So, so we've thought a little bit then about how the idea of oppression means that anyone who doesn't support my inner happiness somehow is then oppressing me. But that doesn't really answer our question about the Bible in particular. So let's think a bit more about that. How can the Bible or the words in a book, any book, be regarded as oppressive? I mean, they're just words, aren't they, Jim? Yeah, but remember, in a world where oppression is defined psychologically, words become weapons. Words can wound. Uh, The left argues that words and gestures or even silence uh, can be offensive and non-affirming. I'm sure all of uh, everyone on the call has heard the term microaggression. Uh, so if I refuse to applaud when someone in, in, the, in the office announces their engagement to a person of the same sex, then I am oppressing that person because I'm not supporting their inner happiness. Well, one of the curious features of life in the past 30 years has been an attack on the word normal. Uh, those of you who, who study these things in maths at school uh, will be familiar with a thing called the bell curve. Uh, it's just a normal distribution of a variable in a big group. So, so take height as an example. Right? Most men are around 1.8 meters tall. Uh, a small number of men are much smaller than that, and a small number of men are much taller. So statistically, we can say that a seven-foot-high man is abnormally tall. Okay? But now, suppose I use that language to talk about normal family life. Maybe I say that the traditional nuclear family has, with a mother and a father and biological children is the normal environment where people grow up. Now, statistically, that's true. But the progressive left would go nuts if I used language like that because they say, in calling something normal, I'm calling those who are outside that category abnormal. Now, that's a great example of how they say words can wound. So take a transgender man who hears me say that it is abnormal for men to wear a dress. The left would say that I am oppressing the transgender person because I'm using language to enforce my values on everyone. So language itself is described nowadays as an instrument of oppression. So to to give some more examples of that then, Jim, some people today would argue that words like mother or wife are actually seen as oppressive words. So someone might say the word mother is a word invented by men to define women and put them in a box uh, and a role that is imposed by society. Or maybe the term wife is seen as oppressive because it relates a woman to a woman's identity to a man. Yeah. Now, in actual fact, what's going on here uh, is a relentless attack on biblical boundaries. Uh, When God establishes the world in the early chapters of Genesis, uh, he sets up boundaries. So he made some of us male and others female. Uh, It was normal for men to be attracted to women and vice versa. But the left is manipulating language to uncreate all those God-given boundaries. So that is the context in which the Bible is seen as an instrument of oppression, Ollie, okay? Its language establishes social norms. It defines what is normal and what is abnormal. And so to use the language of the left, it others those who choose not to conform to its view of normal, healthy living. 
Yeah, I, I said it in the, the kind of brief introduction, Jim, that I did, that the church is seen as an oppressor. And that is something that is particularly problematic for our teenagers and is likely to have a major impact on them, isn't it? Yeah, that's really why we're having this conversation tonight and why, what the next five weeks are about. Uh, over the next two decades, hundreds of thousands of young people will leave evangelical churches in the United States and in here because they regard traditional churches as oppressive. And the main issue is their desire to find a form of Christianity that affirms the LGBT lifestyle. Now, it's not that these people themselves are gay. They have absorbed the idea that a church which doesn't affirm LGBT people's choices is being oppressive, that they're just nasty bigots trying to impose their view of reality on everyone else. Yeah, so some years ago, there was uh, a guy called Jefferson Bethke who wrote a poem that went viral on social media, and it was called Why I Hate Religion But Love Jesus. And the poem's opening line is Jesus came to abolish religion. And I guess the point it's trying to make is actually you can be religious, you can be spiritual, but you don't need a church, you don't need organized religion. But I guess the question is, why shouldn't we reject the idea of religious institutions? Well, as you know, Ollie, I find this poem profoundly irritating. Um, because the opening line is, Jesus came to abolish religion. And that's the whole point of his poem. He sets up religion on one side and Jesus on the other. Now, whether that argument is fair depends on how you define religion. Um, and the trouble is that our poet is hopelessly confused because if religion is, you know, that sort of priggish self-righteousness, the moral preening, the hypocrisy, then, of course, he's quite right. Our, our Lord did come to abolish that nonsense. But too often in the poem, religious is described, religion is described as what we might call the institutional part of Christianity, the structures of a local church with governing elders and doctrinal statements and Bible teaching programs and so on. And when you think of religion like that, it's quite clear that Jesus did not come to abolish religion. I mean, our Lord was a Jew. He went to services in the synagogue. He observed Jewish holy days. He did not come to abolish the law or the prophets, but to fulfill them. He says that in Matthew 5. He founded the church, Matthew 16. He established church discipline, Matthew 18. He instituted a ritual meal, the ceremony we call communion, Matthew 26. He told his disciples to baptize people and to teach others to obey everything he commanded, Matthew 28. So if religion is characterized by doctrine, commands, rituals, and structure, then the Lord Jesus is not your ally when it comes to hating religion. So another reason for this series, Ollie, is to equip young people so that they can resist the push to move from the disciplines and rhythms of church life into the soupy spirituality of a privatized religion. Yeah, no, that's helpful, Jim. So, so we're saying then that that kind of private religion, kind of isolated from church, actually is, is not something that Jesus would have endorsed at all. And I suppose then uh, the most serious attack that I mentioned at the beginning um, of this whole kind of oppression movement is on God himself. Um, so God is portrayed as the ultimate bad guy in all of this. He is the great oppressor, um, the, the greatest oppressor at all, of all, if you like. Uh, what, what lies behind that, that kind of attack, this idea of seeing God as this ogre in the sky? Yes, the, the person of the, of the Trinity who is most hated in this culture is God the Father. Uh, many of you will have heard the term patriarchy. Um, so the progressive left sneers at the idea of a patriarchal society or a patriarchal family. Now, the, the word patriarch just means father. So, so it is the first person of the Trinity, our heavenly father, who is regarded as the supreme oppressor. 
Um, and it's probably good to circle back to our, our opening points about identity here, Ollie. The teenagers in this call will save themselves from mental distress if they can grasp that they are loved by their Father in heaven. It is the truth for your generation. Our Lord's talking about prayer in John chapter 16, and he says this, In that day you will ask in my name. I am not saying that I will ask the Father on your behalf. No, the Father himself loves you. That is such a crucial clause for young people today. The Father himself loves you. I mean, we had a really lovely time this morning at our Breaking of Bread service uh, when we considered the Lord Jesus' gentle and lowly character. But I have seen scores of students who believe that, and yet they have a completely different view of God, of the character of God the Father. They find our Father in heaven to be remote and scary, uh, to be tyrannical even. Uh, And I think there are two reasons behind that uh, wrong view. And the first reason, as you have just said uh, in your opening, it relates to wider culture. The progressive left hates the very idea of a father's role in someone's life. God the Father is portrayed as a cosmic tyrant. But we can know, we can, sure, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, no, I think I think that's all really, really helpful stuff, Jim. And as, I, I think as well, it's just important to say, it, you know, if people do have questions, uh, kind of off the back of this discussion, we'd we'd love you to ask those questions and uh, send them in to us. Um, particularly our teenagers, you can do that via uh, our Instagram page. Um, we'd really love to kind of hear any follow up, and maybe I can ask Jim some of those questions next week. Um, but hopefully this gives a little bit of a kind of a primer, a little bit of an introduction to some of the, the other topics we have coming up. So I just want to run through those. So, so next week, we're going to be looking at this question of doesn't the Bible need modernized? So some people would say, actually, you know, Christianity is very backward. Um, the Bible is very backward. We really need to bring it up to date. And we're going to say, well, is that really true? Uh, can, you know, can the Bible really be considered as, as backward? We're going to address that question. The week after, we're going to ask, doesn't the Bible oppress women? So um, one of the things that people would say is actually, you know, Christianity is kind of dominated by men and it's it's founded by men. Uh, and that means it oppresses women. We're going to we're going to ask, well, is that true? Uh, and then when it comes to the whole area of sexuality, and Jim has touched on that um, a number of times tonight, we're going to ask, well, is the Bible's teaching on sexuality dangerous? Some people would say, well, it, it limits our freedom to be who we really are. We're going to ask, is that really true? Um, and then finally, in our fifth week, we're going to say, does the Bible pre- prevent me from being myself? Does it limit uh, me being who I truly want to be? So this is maybe a little bit of an introduction, Jim, to some of those big topics that we're going to be looking at over the next few weeks. Um, and you're going to be rejoining us to, to chat about those. Um, so really looking forward to that. Um Brilliant. Thanks. Thanks so much, uh, Jim, for your time. Um, We're going to take a short break now and sing a hymn together. Uh, And during that period, the CY guys are going to join a separate Zoom call and we're going to maybe discuss some of these questions a little bit further in our own groups. And Jim is going to bring a reflection from the Bible to to the rest of you guys who remain on the call. Um, But let's uh, now sing the hymn, um, Speak, O Lord, together.
Uh, I just thought for those of us who are not heading off to CY for a discussion, uh, we might take a few moments and reflect together on the Word of God and um, to maintain our confidence in it in a world uh, which is placing it under such pressure. And so I want to just take a few thoughts from the book of Jeremiah. Um, obviously, the, the prophecy of Jeremiah contains those really famous words, uh, made famous because they're in Mendelssohn's Elijah. Is not my word like a fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces. So I want to think about the written word of God for a few moments uh, by reading a few verses with you from Jeremiah 36. So if you have a Bible, turn to Jeremiah 36. Now, before we read the verses, uh, let me just set the context. Um, the book of Jeremiah charts the collapse of a culture, <laughs> which is pretty apt for our situation. And by this stage, uh, the prophet Jeremiah has been banned from the temple. Um, he preached a sermon way back in chapter 7 that so enraged the ruling elite that the priests had told the temple guards never to allow Jeremiah to cross the threshold. So how was the word of God to be heard? Well, Jeremiah had a companion. His name was Baruch. And Baruch took Jeremiah's words and transcribed them onto a scroll. So we're beginning to see here the idea of the written word of God. Uh, he says in verse 18 of our chapter, I wrote his words with ink on a scroll. So Jeremiah then sends Baruch into the temple complex to, to read out the words of the scroll. And the officials are so unnerved by the message um, that they, uh, uh, they, they, they take it to the king. And uh, he asks for it to be read out. And this time it's read by some random servant, a man called uh, Jehudi. Um, but the king is still hearing the word of God. Okay, so that's the context. So let's now read from Jeremiah chapter 36. And we'll start at verse 22. It, it was the ninth month and the king was sitting in the winter house. And there was a fire burning in the fire pot before him. As Jehudi read three or four columns, the king would cut them off with a knife and throw them into the fire in the fire pot until the entire scroll was consumed in the fire that was in the fire pot. Yet neither the king nor any of his servants who heard all these words was afraid, nor did they tear their garments. Even when Elnathan and, and Deliah and Gamaria urged the king not to burn the scroll, he would not listen to them. I can't think of a more chilling moment in the whole of the Old Testament. King Jehoiakim is sitting in his palace. It's a cold winter's day. So he has a fire burning in the room. Now, you need to understand the full horror of this moment. I mean, don't think for a moment that Jehoiakim rushed in a rage to, to, um, uh, to hurl the whole scroll in the fire. The incident is terrifying because the king and his officials are so calm, so deliberate in their actions. Uh, the servant read out a column of the scroll. The king thought about it, nodded then walked over to the servant. He took a sharp knife and sliced off a column. And then he deliberately burned a fragment of the scroll in the fire. And that process went on column after column. So we were watching a deliberate, calculated rejection of God's word. This wasn't an angry outburst. It was cold, premeditated, an act of destruction. And all over the Western world, in theology seminaries and in evangelical churches, Men and women are taking a knife to the word of God and cutting out the bits they disagree with. And that is the reason we are beginning this series, brothers and sisters. Huge tracts of the Old Testament are dismissed as culturally static bits of rubble that can be discarded by the church. Many of the Apostle Paul's most important teachings are cast aside with contempt 
using the same postmodern arguments. I mean, as I said to Ollie in our discussion, hundreds of thousands of young people will leave their evangelical churches. Now, let's just jump for a moment to the very, very end of the book, the very end of, of Jeremiah, uh, to chapter 51. Just some of the last verses there. Chapter 51 is a very long uh, chapter, so we'll start at verse 60. Jeremiah 51, verse 60, and we'll read through to 64. Jeremiah wrote in a book, all the disaster that should come upon Babylon, all these words that are written concerning Babylon. And Jeremiah said to Sariah, when you come to Babylon, see that you read all these words and say, O Lord, you have said concerning this place that you will cut it off so that nothing shall dwell in it, neither man nor beast, and it shall be desolate forever. When you finish reading this book, tie a stone to it and cast it into the midst of the Euphrates and say, thus shall Babylon sink and to rise no more because of the disaster that I'm bringing upon her and they shall become exhausted. So by this time, Jeremiah had dictated another scroll, another section of this book in front of us uh, to Baruch. Uh, and Baruch's brother, a man called Seriah, uh, had then made the arduous journey from Jerusalem to the exiles in Babylon. And the scroll contained um, judgments against Babylon. And so it was a very dangerous document to have around. So he was instructed, once he had read the thing, uh, uh, once he had read it out, to tie a big stone around the scroll and hurl it into the river Euphrates. Now, at first sight, both the incidents we have thought about seem to reveal the written word of God as a vulnerable thing. We see it getting cut up, and we see it getting burned, and then we watch it being hurled into the depths of a river, burned and drowned. What a way to treat the word of God. I mean, we seem to be very far, don't we, from those words in chapter 23 when the prophet said that the written word of God was like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces. But God's word is true. And truth changes history. Whenever people encounter truth, history changes. Well, wait a minute, you say. Surely men like Jehoiakim and Zedekiah simply ignored or rejected God's word. Where is its power to change things? All we have seen is the word getting burned and drowned. Is it true, as we read in chapter 23, that God's word is a fire, like a hammer that breaks the rock? Well, here we have to consider a really solemn idea. Time and time again in Jeremiah, we come across one key date, the fourth year of King Jehoiakim's reign. That is the moment when Jeremiah announces that the exile has become a certainty. So before that date, all he, all he did was to warn about the possibility of judgment. But after that date, he says that judgment is inevitable. To use the language of the potter and the clay in chapters 18 and 19, the clay had hardened, so God's plan for the exile could not be altered. But why was the future nailed down at that specific date? And we aren't told why in the whole prophecy until we get to chapter 36. God's judgment, the exile, became an inevitability once the king and his officials formally rejected the word of God. So at first glance in chapter 36, it's the word that seems weak. We watch that scroll being cut up and burned. But in historical terms, that was the very moment when Jeremiah's prophecies were given the green light to proceed. History altered irrevocably once Jehoiakim made his fateful choice. Now, there's a solemn and practical point here for us as, as churches. The word of God will either feed us or harden us. Just as Christ is either the foundation stone or the stumbling block in life, so his word is either a life-giving seed or a destructive hammer. Either way, history changes whenever we read it. The collapse of a Christian church into irrelevance 
into the irrelevance of liberalism can always be traced, traced back to one small, seemingly insignificant slicing of a passage of Scripture from the Bible. Now, Scripture gives us a more positive example of, of that principle because years later, uh, the exiles were in Babylon and they started to read Jeremiah's words again from the scrolls that Baruch had sent them. And this time they really listened and they found in Jeremiah's prophecies reasons to hope once again. And we know that because in Daniel chapter 9, we read these words. In the first year of Darius, son of Xerxes, who was made ruler of the Babylonian kingdom, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures, according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah, the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. So once again, the timing is really significant. The Babylonian empire had just fallen to the Medes and the Persians. And Daniel had been reading Jeremiah. And he encounters the promise that the people of Judah will return to their homeland in 70 years. And this time we're watching a man respond in obedience to the word of God. He starts to pray, claiming the promises in God's word, asking God to change history once more. And God hears that man of God's prayers and invokes a chain of events that bring the people back 70 years from the start of Daniel's captivity. Now, that figure of 70 years, I think, is a helpful guide when we think about our own situation. Those of you who are parents, you need to prepare your children and your grandchildren to live in Babylon, to live in a post-Christian culture for the rest of this century. So the best thing you can do is to help, to help them, is to model a life lived under the authority of the Word of God. The Word of God changes history. Do you remember that scroll that Barak's brother was told to throw into the Euphrates? Did it just contain words that sank without trace? Well, remember the timing of Daniel's prayer. The Medes and Persians took over the Babylonian Empire on a single night. You can read it in Daniel chapter 5 if you want. But here's the thing. How did the Persians capture the city? They diverted the river Euphrates and walked up the water tunnel into the city. Historians tell us that it wasn't just Belshazzar who was drunk that night. Even the watchmen were so drunk that the Persians took the city with no resistance. When they walked along the riverbed into the city, they didn't even get their feet wet. The word of God had not sunk without trace into that river. It changed history. And Jeremiah had prof prophesied the whole thing. He spends two very long chapters predicting Babylonians' fall. A destroyer will come against Babylon, he says, and I will make Babylon's officials and wise men drunk, her governors, officers, and warriors as well. They will sleep forever and not awake. Now listen to this, he says. How desolate is Babylon among the nations? How broken and shattered is the hammer of the whole earth? Who is the real hammer in the book of Jeremiah? Is it the crushing power of Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian army? Or is it the word that is like a hammer that breaks the rock? In many ways, that is the key question raised by this whole ancient book. Who or what controls history? What is the power to change history? Is it the power of empires, the power of a ruling elite? Or is it that apparently weak thing, the written word of God? And by the time you get to the end of the book, the answer is clear. God's word is the hammer that breaks the rock of human rebellion and idolatry. So we're done. As a fellowship, let's hold unswervingly to the doctrines of scriptural authority and inerrancy. Do not depart from it to the left or to the right. So let's make sure our teenagers live within a community that feels the sheer weight of scripture, which doesn't treat it lightly and which never commits the horror of slicing out the bits we don't like. I'm going to pray 
and then our service will be over. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for faithful men and women, saints of your church, who gave their lives that we might hold a Bible in our hands. They were burned at the stake. And our Father, we pray that you would so work by your Spirit in our church that we would be marked by men and women who live willingly under the authority of Scripture. Men and women who engage intelligently and courteously with culture, but who do not compromise the weight of Scripture out of fear of culture. We pray for the members of CY, for our teenagers, who are meeting to discuss these things as we speak. We pray, Lord, you would raise up a generation of young men and women who will stand for Christ, who will be loyal to him, who will obey your word, who won't sit over it, who won't set it aside, but who will live under its authority. And we pray that you'd protect us, Father, as a fellowship from being divided, that you would protect us from false teachers who might um, come in and attempt to slice off bits of the Bible. Our Father, we pray for everyone in this call whose heart is heavy or who is feeling alone or isolated. We remember the bereaved of our assembly. We pray once again for Eva uh, and her family as they mourn the passing of Bob. Uh, but we pray, Lord, for ourselves, that you would encourage our hearts, that you would remind us once again that your word is a hammer that breaks the rock, and uh, that you would give us confidence uh, in the word of God. We ask now that you part us in your fear and with your blessing. In Jesus' name, amen.